first time I've given a talk with blooming reading glasses. And it's, uh, what do you do with the damn things? You know what I mean? I can't see the talk or I can't see you. But anyway, we'll do our best. Uh, so, yeah, thanks for that introduction, uh, Marbodi. Um, so, yeah, so this talk is uh, entitled Me and My Mate Pingia. Hopefully it will become clear why as we go along. Um, it's quite a full talk, I warn you now. Um, probably go on for about an hour. If you want to go for a pee, fall asleep, whatever, face out, do what you like, but I'm just going to carry on. Uh, hopefully you'll stay with it. Um, yeah, okay, so let's just get going. Right. <coughs> Nothing new will be said here, nor have I any skill in composition. Therefore, I do not imagine that I can benefit others. I've done this to perfume my own mind. While doing this, the surge of my inspiration to cultivate what is skillful increases. Moreover, should another of the very same humours as me also look at this, then they may too benefit from it. So that's uh, verses 2 and 3 from a text called the Bodhicharyavatara by a chap called Shantideva. It's the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. Um, I read them out because they kind of express the spirit in which I give this talk. Um, Shantideva, well, he was a great spiritual genius. Um, those verses express humility on his part. Uh, me, uh, I mean them quite literally. Um, you know, I'm not a great spiritual genius. I'm not a great exemplar uh, of the Buddhist life as far as I'm concerned, although sometimes others beg to differ with me. But anyway, um, my spiritual life, my spiritual career, um, uh, such as it's been, um, in some ways, feels like it hasn't amounted to much. It's had its twists, it's had its turns, it's had its blind alleys. I've run into brick walls, I've had my crises. Um, but, yeah, I'm still here, despite the difficulties. Um, I'm still here, well, it's now, it's about 28 years now since I first learnt to meditate uh, at the old uh, centre in Chalton. Yeah. And there's a theme that's kind of run through those 28 years um, that's become more and more important as time's gone on that I wanted to share with you. So that's, yeah, that's, that's what I'm going to be talking about. And it's been, a, it's been quite a lifesaver for me. Um, the theme, broadly speaking, is how I've learnt to engage with and learn from the ancient, Buddhist, uh, the ancient tradition that we call Buddhism. Um, specifically, it was to do with how I, um, how I found a text and bit by, bit by bit, over time, I grew to love it. There's two sections to the talk. So there's kind of general thoughts about that process of finding a text and learning to love it, and then specific reflections on the text itself. So, in general, well, the text is called Pingia's Praises of the Way to the Beyond, or at least that's what we tend to know it as. Um, it's, uh, it's the epilogue of a chapter in the Suttanapata, which is an ancient Buddhist text, uh, called the Parayana Vaga, the, the verses on the way to the beyond. This is the final, final chapter of this book, the Suttanapata, and it's, um, it's very early, uh, or probably part of the earliest strata of the Pali Canon. It's really quite archaic. And when I read it... Um, I think what I pick up on is kind of echo, echoes of actual conversations that the Buddha would have had with people. Yeah, it's, not, uh, it's not formulaic, it's not systematised, it's quite poetic and archaic. 
Yeah, so I, I kind of imagine there, there are echoes of actual conversations the Buddha had. I can't be sure about that. Uh, you know, that idea is based on uh, textual analysis that occurred maybe 20 years ago. Um, but that's how I relate to it, and it moves me very deeply. My initial response to this text and to the Pali Canon in general was not love at first sight, it has to be said. Um, first retreat, no, second retreat I went on was at Padmaloka, winter retreat, and a chap called Padmavajra, just back from India, gave a talk about the Pali Canon. A very long talk, and I thought it was really boring. <laughs> Which is uh, a bit of a confession because I know. Uh, you know, when I think back on the talk now, again, what I know of Padmavajra, he's a really good speaker. Uh, and I love the Pali Canon these days, and I, I don't know what was going on, but at that time I was not open to it. It was not love at first sight. But I kept hearing Pingya's praises in Pujas. It's a popular reading, or it used to be at least. Um, and something about it kind of hooked me. Uh, I don't know what, but something about it hooked me. Getting to know this text was not a coherent, worked-out plan. Uh, life, um, perhaps especially my life, uh, is not coherent and not, and not generally very well worked out. Uh, I just The only thing that happened was I kind of took note of the fact I found it interesting, and I just kept on working at it, kept on pulling at the threads, as it were. And very slowly, um, meaning began to reveal itself. And I put the emphasis here on very slowly. Um, I think uh, this is a, one of the things you have to learn to work with that's a bit tricky from our point of view with these texts. They don't reveal themselves straight away. And it's a bit kind of, runs a bit counter to our current culture of, you know, you just look something up and you get an answer. It doesn't work like that. Uh, these texts, well, they reveal themselves like quite a shy friend. That's the way I experience it. Um, and it, they reveal themselves in a dialogue that takes place over years or even decades. And that's certainly been the way I've experienced this one. So, yeah, uh, it is a bit like a friendship or a relationship. It, uh, it develops, it responds, it requires fidelity. You've got to keep at it. Sometimes you fall out, you just get fed up with it. It gets fed up with you, and you don't look at it for a bit. Um, hence the title of this talk, Me and My Mate Pingia. It's felt like through this text, slowly, I've got to know this character, Pingia, who's the, the main protagonist in the text. And it does feel like he's become a friend. Uh, or specifically, he's become what we'd call a Kalyanamitra, a spiritual friend from the Buddhist point of view. He's been a kind of gateway into Sangha for me. Maybe even a gateway into Aryasanga, I don't know. And he's been teaching me, specifically he's been teaching me about Shraddha, or, I'm sorry, in Pali, Sadha, the Sanskrit word is Shraddha. And it kind of gets rendered as faith. Uh, it's not a very good translation, but it's probably the best we've got. And it's been teaching me about liberation by means of faith. Pingya... Um, stayed me with him during my dark days. So, you know, Marbodi talked about, well, I was very key and very involved with the Buddhist Centre through the 90s uh, up into the early noughties or whatever it was. Uh, but, yeah, I've had a period, you know, an extensive period where my connection with the movement and with the order has been very tenuous indeed. Uh, I came along, yeah, in 1990. <coughs> I had a strong response to the movement, I had a strong response to the Dharma. I took a flamethrower to my old life, I literally, you know, quite literally destroyed it. Um, 
moved into community, got involved in working for the centre, got ordained really fast. 1992 I got ordained. I went hell for leather. I remember having this sort of sense of like, insight or bust. This is, you know, this is where we're going. Ten day, sorry, ten years hard at it and uh, insight will arise. Bodhisattva path, here we go, Bodhicitta's going to arise, and off I went. I ran the centre, I ran, got involved in and ran Buddhist building projects. I was the Mitra convener. 10 or 15 years later, I found that my deeper tendencies, my deeper samskaras, were largely unchanged. It's slightly embarrassing, but you know, that's what I kept coming up against. It's like... Um, I certainly didn't experience myself as having any sort of insight, and it did feel a bit like, um, you know, with regard to my deeper samskaras, they were just like this big rock, and I had a little bull hammer, and I'd been hammering away at it. And, you know, there's the image of, you know, at the 200th blow or the 20,000th blow, eventually the rock splits. Well, you know, the handle broke my hammer, frankly. And uh, I was left thinking... Well, I won't say exactly what I was thinking, but, you know, oh, crikey. Uh, uh, I hit a brick wall. I hit a brick wall, I could not make myself practice. You know, I had, up to that point, I had done a lot of meditation, I'd studied a lot, I just couldn't make myself do anything, frankly. And I did go on a bit of an orbit. And then, at that point, that's when Pingia stayed, uh, stayed in touch with me. During that time, I did very little else, but, you know, I lived with my Chanandi, I maintained a few friendships, Moksha Priya, Sahaja. Occasionally would pitch up at the centre for a chapter meeting. Sometimes I'd come for a festival, feel a bit weird, go away. Not much else happened really. Occasionally I did give a talk and then I'd disappear again. Uh, but Pingya remained a vital con- um, connection whilst I reconstructed practice. And I connected with a particular Far Eastern Buddhist teacher, Shinran. Um, but that's another story, I'm not going to that, it's too big. It would make the talk too big. So yeah, Pingy has been my mate, um, my imaginary friend. Now usually imaginary friend, it's a pejorative term. Um, but I think that cultivating imagination in the spiritual life and cultivating an imaginative connection with Buddhism and with the figures that we come across uh, in the Buddhist canon is a vital or even a, a central issue in the spiritual life. And why is that? Well. You know, we can't hang out with the Buddha. He lived two and a half thousand years ago, um, a long way away. When you read the Pali Suttas, uh, the stuff that comes from around the time of the Buddha, um, his presence obviously had a massive impact on the people that he met. Uh, you know, he'd bump into Bahia of the Bark Garment, says a few things, uh, bang, stream entry, enlightenment. You know, the, the impact of the Buddha's presence and personality was obviously enormous. Well, we can't experience that in the same way. For us, we need an imaginative connection. I'm not going to say a lot about imagination. Again, it's a huge topic, but it's a really important one. And it's one that, you you know, if you take anything away from this talk, cultivate the imagination. You, you really need to do something about that. I refer you to... Uh, Maitreya Bandhu's book, The Path and the Guide, there's a lot about very useful stuff about imagination in the spiritual life in there. Uh, I refer you to uh, Sabuti's talk, uh, paper, Reimagining the Buddha. Again, there's a lot about imagination in the spiritual life there. 
referring to Bhante in the religion of art again. So you know, look at those, look at those, uh, those sources, look at those themes, get working on your spiritual life. But yeah, what I will say is I'm referring to imagination in the sense that uh, Coleridge uses it, or used it rather, he's dead, uh, a kind of faculty for perceiving truth, uh, for perceiving reality. And he distinguishes it from what he calls fancy, uh, which is um, what I think of as fantasy, basically, uh, imagination in the debased sense. Imagination in the higher sense is something that lifts you out of your current self, your current perspectives, uh, your current preoccupations into a bigger or a deeper engagement with the realities of our lives. That's, that's basically what it's about. Fancy or fantasy reinforces you as you are, uh, usually at your worst. Just think about your favourite fantasies. What are they about and what do they reinforce about you? Sexual fantasies, hateful fantasies, escapist fantasies. Yeah. So... It's, it's imagination that I'm talking about in the true sense uh, that we, we need to be cultivating. Learning to distinguish between these two and uh, cultivate genuine imagination is, is vital. And it's really difficult to do, I think. It takes, takes a lot of time and a lot, a lot of work. The same question will arise in meditation. You know, you're meditating, some sort of vague intuition arises about what you need to do in the meditation. Is that a genuine uh, imaginative inspiration that's occurring? Or is it just fantasy? Is it just time-wasting? You have to learn how to distinguish between the two. Sometimes you have to let go of the structure and move towards something. Sometimes you actually just have to stick with the structure. Will it lead you into the meditation? Will it lead you out? And again, this is something you have to learn in meditation. We can talk about the importance of it, but you've got to learn how to do it. I'll give you an example from my own experience. So. Um, when I became an order member, I took up uh, a sadhana practice where you're visualising Buddha figures. So I started with Vajrapani, and then I took up the Pragna Paramita practice, I think. And at some point, Athena kept turning up. I sit down to meditate, and it's Athena. It's like, uh, she's Greek goddess, she's not Buddhist. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> what do I do with this? And I, I, um, I got into dialogue with my public preceptor, Sabuti, and he said, well... Sounds like a genuine. Uh, uh, it sounds like genuine imagination to me. You're going to have to explore this. So he said, "Well, you know, you know how a sadhana works. Make a sadhana up. Get on with it. See what happens." So you know that was him kind of teaching me how to learn, learn how to sort of distinguish genuine imagination and explore it. Okay. Uh, da -da 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 -da. Yeah. So it's a big topic. Perhaps the big topic. If I think about my own spiritual life, I'd say it is kind of the big topic. Look into it. If that's anything, you know, if you take anything away from this talk, take that away. Okay, so what did I do to cultivate my imaginary friendship with Pingia? So as I said, it wasn't love at first sight, but I did. The main thing I did was I noticed the interest and I just kept at it. I explored it. So to start with, I began to read those boring old Pali suttas. Trying, not, trying to stay awake while I was doing it. And I read the life of the Buddha, various lives of the Buddha. And bit by bit I began to connect with the world. I started taking it more and more seriously. I began to realise, oh, these weird old tales actually have relevance here and there. That's interesting. And I got more interested. Um, I remembered Bhante talking about the ideal student of Buddhism uh, in a book called The Survey of Buddhism. 
and you know I was going to gain insight so ideal student right that's going to be me and uh, one of the things he says in there is um, they would be prepared to read the tradition in its own language oh, okay well there's a challenge <laughs> uh, so I learnt Pali um, actually it wasn't that difficult I found um, and don't get me wrong, I've got no particular facility with languages. Um, for those of you who are old enough to remember them, I got remember them. Uh, I got CSE Grade Two in German, you know, which is not very good actually. That was about as far as I got at school. I found a book, uh, an introduction to Pali by A.K. Warder, which does still exist, although it's extraordinarily expensive if you decide you want to look at it. Um, and I worked at it, I worked my way through the book and bit by bit, for example, the refuges and precepts came to life because I, I had much more of an engagement with what these words actually meant and the resonance of them. The T. Ratnavandana came to light when I was chanting it. I started translating simple stuff, Diginikaya, the formulaic repetitive Pali stuff. Translated is probably, it's a bit of a grand term. Uh, you know, I'm self-taught in Pali. I understand the grammar to some extent. I can use a Pali English dictionary. Maybe it's close to say I can render it. You know, I'm not good at Pali, but I, I've got a rough working knowledge. But, you know, it worked. I then started moving on to the earlier, more archaic stuff, the Sutta and eventually the Parayanavaga, because of my interest in Pingir. Pali is not the language spoken by the Buddha, uh, but it's close. Um, it's a kind of simplified uh, version of, I think, the language is Magadan, or at least that's, that's, that's the way I understand it, which is a dialect that the Buddha, the Buddha probably did speak. So when I chant it, when I read it, uh, I do feel the resonance of the, the Buddha's words. There's something about it being in Pali that has a particular effect on me, you know, effect on my imagination. So yeah, I kind of feel him speaking and I imagine I'm hearing echoes of those, those conversations that occurred. Him communicating the enlightened mind, reaching out to the unenlightened mind. And it moves me. So then I, I, I rendered the Parayanavaga, the, uh, the chapter within which uh, Pingu's praises occurs. It's a big chapter. It's got an introduction with this really odd story uh, where there's this Brahmin, Bhavari, who lives... Uh, he kind of lives in retreat by a river and another Brahmin comes along and asks him for some money and he hasn't got any money so he says, I'm sorry, I can't give you any money. So the other Brahmin curses him and says, in uh, seven days your head is going to split into seven pieces. Bhavari is really worried about this and uh, he's unable to carry on meditating and it's just like driving him mad and he's like waiting for his head to split. So uh, uh, a deva, a god, comes along, I think he's got some sort of yeah, it used to be a blood relation of Bavaries, and they have a conversation. The Dave said, Well, I don't know anything about uh, head splitting, but I know somebody who does, this guy called the Buddha. So Bavari has some students, 16 of them. Pingu is one of those students, and he sends them off on a long journey to meet the Buddha. So that's the introductory uh, uh, part of the, the story. But then there's 16 little suitors, which is basically each of those students asks a set of questions of the Buddha when they finally get to meet him. And the Pingia's praises bit is this kind of epilogue that occurs after Pingia has now gone back, presumably back to where Bavari is, and it's, it occurs sometime later. Okay. So yeah, I rendered this from Pali into English. 
I copied it out into nice little notebooks. I've got all these notebooks at home, you know, little projects I've been working on. And I wrapped those notebooks in cloth and I put them on my shrine and I, I read them. Uh, often read them in front of the shrine. I'm just going to go off on a little tangent here um, about this whole thing about like treating texts in a particular way. It's about etiquette and imagination. The texts were important to me uh, and I found it important to pay respect to them in some way, to express reverence. It kind of helped, I found. I used the etiquette I'd imbibed from people I'd uh, came across when I first came to the Buddhist Centre, Ratnaguna, uh, Mokshapriya, Artapriya, various people like that. Um, reverence and etiquette is not a popular topic these days. Uh, it wasn't really then, it's probably less so now. Um, we pay little attention to it in our current culture, uh, which tends to level things out rather than placing things on a pedestal. You know, I mean, I know there's problems with it, but reverence, respect, it's played down, and that's problematical, I think. So for us, a text or a book is something that we think we own rather than something to be venerated and learnt from. Um, which I think is a problem because I think our, actually our imaginations do work hierarchically. They don't work on uh, a level playing field. They perceive value. Um, they perceive relative value. And if you want to engage imaginatively with a text, you have to, you have to value it. That's the only way it works, I think. Um, if you plonk a book on the floor, yeah, it's your book, you can put it where you want, it doesn't matter. It might not register with you, but I think it, it will actually register with your imagination, and your imagination kind of won't pay attention in the same way. Um, I just think it makes you less open. The same issue refers to the uh, uh, also refers to the shrine. Um, traditionally, in a traditional culture, you'd be very careful about how you orientate yourself towards the shrine. You know that's why we bow towards the shrine, our kind of highest towards the uh, towards the shrine. You wouldn't point your feet towards them, for example. I'm not having a go here, um, but I wonder if we aren't missing out on a really important trick unless we pay quite close attention to this sort of stuff. Express, you know, physically expressing veneration makes you more uh, receptive. That certainly works in my experience. I think maybe you need to think about it like, you know, you're on a date uh, with a new boyfriend or girlfriend. Um, you're on your best behaviour. You know, that's part of what goes on. That's what you do in that situation, isn't it? And maybe it helps to think of uh, imagination not so much as a faculty, but as a as a being. Um, Socrates, you know, like, I, I just love Socrates. He had a daemon, daemon um, so it was kind of a being that uh, he was in relation to, and he paid attention to what his daemon said to him. A little voice talking to him. Well, anyway, whatever, it worked for, it worked for Socrates. You've got the Davis in the Pali Canon who turn up. I mentioned um, uh, the one talking to Bhavari, and also Bahia, who I also mentioned earlier. The reason he went to see the Buddha is because the Deva had told him that he was going, getting nowhere and he needed to go and see the Buddha. So, uh, you know, that's kind of, you know, that's imagination personified. And I think that's a useful way of thinking about it. Imagination is like a being that you have to court. Okay, so that little rant over. Uh, so, I rendered the Parayanavaga into English. I copied it, I put it on the shrine. And then I got into memorising it so I could recite it, because, you know, traditional Buddhist countries... There's a, there's, a, there's a big, a lot of stock put in that. You often hear the monks, for example, reciting great long tracts of texts. I just got into doing that. 
So I learnt the whole of the Parayana Vaga. Um, uh, had it all in my mind. It's not all there now, because I haven't worked at it in the last few years. Um, you know, it's, uh, it was quite a lengthy undertaking. It took me a few years to learn how, learn how to recite the whole thing. Um, and I made up a little tune, and I, can, you know, I used to chant it. When I crashed, when I wasn't really involved with the movement for a while, uh, that was all that was left. So my practice, such as it was, for quite a long period of time, was on my way to work at A&E, it was about a half hour drive before I'd get to Oldham, I could just about chant the entire Parayana Vaga if I did it really fast, whilst I'm driving down the M60. Probably not a very safe thing to do, but, you know, it was just like a thread that somehow or other kept me in touch with, with Buddhism. Yeah, it was a bit bonkers, really, but little by little it worked on me. Um, my mind kept turning to the themes, kept reflecting on them. The questions of the 16 Brahmins were interesting, but it was the epilogue, Pingya's praises, that just kept hooking me over and over again. And I found myself thinking about uh, the themes that were in it. And what, 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 is it what is this text actually going on about? Yeah, I found that it's Pingya's praises that really started shedding light on my life. So it's narrated by Pingya. Or rather, it's actually sung by him. It's almost like a song. That's the kind of way it works. And I found that Pingya was kind of singing to me. And I listened, I reflected, I applied the themes. I explored them, I learnt from him, I admired him. I wanted to emulate Pingya. I wanted to be like him. And that's still going on. I still chant it most days, that particular bit, the, the epilogue. Um, yeah, not the whole thing, but the epilogue I chant most days. It's in my mind, it's in my heart. Uh, increasingly it forms, it informs the world that I live in. Uh, you know, I love it. I love Pingya. I love the Buddha. That's how I kind of develop the friendship. If that sounds like a lot of work, just remember this occurred over a very long period of time. You know, we're talking a couple of decades or more where this, where this has been going on. Um, you know, it's a, I noticed the response and I explored it. I deepened it, I developed it, and over a long period of time, it's paid off. Okay, so specific themes. So let's go through the text a bit. So the Parayanavaga opens with a kind of, um, what's called a, a paean of praise, it's like a hymn of praise about the Buddha. Uh, Pingy is just singing of you know, why he thinks the Buddha is fantastic. Yeah, he's obviously got a very strong feeling for him. It's almost a love song, uh, and he just extols the virtues that he admires. So the Buddha is someone he's met, he's interacted with, he admires. And at this point, he's no longer with him. He's back where he set out from before the, uh, before the journey began with Bhavari. He's no longer in contact with the Buddha. He's had a response of faith, or sadha, or shraddha in the Buddha, in the person of the Buddha, and he's recalling it. So, first of all, what is sadha? What is faith in the Buddhist sense? Well, the first, the first thing to say is it's a kind, it is a heart response to something. Um, it, I don't know whether this is true or not, but there's a kind of an etymology which talks about um, the, the origin of the word sadha is to place the heart upon. So it's a kind of heart response. Bhante describes faith as being the ultimate in you responding to the ultimate in the universe. 
So it's a kind of, you know, heart response and it's a kind of intuitive knowing. Initially very vague that something is real, true, of value. From a Buddhist perspective, sadhas, objects, faith's objects, are the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. So it is a heart response, but also it can be explored with reason. Pingya, as he's singing this, uh, this kind of love song to the Buddha, uh, uh, you know, he admires the Buddha's qualities, but he can think about them, he can see how they fit together, and he, he can sort of articulate that. So, for example, um, there's this, there's this uh, one particular verse, Beyond desire, enlightened, what could cause such a person to lie? The Buddha's free of craving, the Buddha's free of hatred, the Buddha's free of egoistic delusion. He doesn't need to protect himself by bigging himself up. He can just be entirely honest. Again, Pingu is exploring his, his, his qualities by reason. He's free to speak truthfully. Okay, similarly, if you say you have a response of fact, response of faith in the Dharma, um, you can explore it with reason. You can kind of think about it, think how, it, how it, you can reflect on it. You can see if it makes sense. Oh yeah, impermanence. Oh yeah, everything changes. Now you can think about, well, can you think of anything that doesn't change? You know, that, that's kind of, you know, your initial faith response has to accord with reason on some level. There's a logic to it. And yeah, if everything changes and I grasp hold of things, oh yeah, I'm going to suffer because I'm going to lose those things and that's really painful, isn't it? Oh yeah, that makes sense. But it starts with this kind of, um, it starts with this vague intuitive sense that one has come across something of great value that is true. Um, and that, you know, specifically you've come across some, that within the three jewels and that that's going to change everything. Pingya now expresses this, and I'm paraphrasing a bit here. Like a bird abandoning scrubland and arriving at the forest full of fruit, even so have I abandoned opinion and am like a water bird arriving at a great lake. So this is that sense of coming home to something uh, that you've always suspected. Can you recall you know, having had an experience like this? I certainly have, and the likelihood is if you stick around, you've had that experience yourself. Uh, for me, initially, it was a response to the Dharma rather than the Buddha, um, as expressed in a book called The Buddhist Vision by this, by this chap I've mentioned before, Sabuti. Uh, you know, I came along in order to learn to meditate, because I'd, well, actually because I'd smoke, given up smoking ganja, and I thought meditation might replace it, because I didn't want to start smoking ganja again. And then there were all these really interesting ideas, and then I read this book about Buddhism, this particular one, The Buddhist Vision, I was on a train journey from uh, Manchester to Cornwall. By the time I got to Cornwall, I'd read the book and I thought, oh, I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> like, I've always been looking around for something like this and I didn't realise what I was looking for. Again, think about your own experience, whether you've had anything like that. Here's another example in the, um, that comes from the Pali Canon. Uh, there's a character called Anatta Pindika. I find him really interesting. He's, um, he was a merchant and he becomes a, you know, a very uh, loyal um, supporter of the Buddha. Uh, you know, gave the Buddha, the Buddha and this Sangha parks that they could stay in for the rainy, rainy season retreat. So when an Artapindika comes across the Buddha, he's gone to visit a friend in the town of Rajagriya, I think, is, uh, if I remember rightly, because he lives somewhere else in Shravasti. Um, and when he gets there, the town's like 
you know, it's all, it's all, there's loads going on, it's all in kind of uproar. And he, he's asking his friend, well, what's going on? So the friend tells him, the Buddha's coming to visit. And Artapindika hears the word Buddha and he goes, Buddha? Did you say Buddha, householder? And he, yeah, I said Buddha. Oh, and Artapindika. And, and he goes again, Buddha? Did you say Buddha, householder? And this goes on for a while. Something about the word transfixes uh, an Artapindika. I mean, for him, you know, he would have known it meant to be awake. Something about that, he's had a kind of a faith response to it. There's this lovely story of him. He's so kind of, yeah, transfixed by the fact that the Buddha's turning up and what the Buddha might be that he, he can't sleep that night and he keeps getting up in the middle of the night and putting all his clothes on and going out and realising it's not dawn yet and going back in again, getting back into bed. And this happens a number of times and then he finally meets the Buddha. He has, you know, he's a faith type. He has a very strong faith response in the Buddha. Okay. Pingya then goes on to say, having been praising the Buddha, those who taught me before Gotama, Gotama the Buddha, just repeated tradition. It was all hearsay, speculation. Then I came across the darkness, darkness dispeller. Gotama, a universe of wisdom, a world of understanding. He who taught me the truth, visible, timeless, destroying craving without, without harmful side effects, with nothing quite like it anywhere. So yeah, you get the sense of how this is really transformed his life. So the next verse. Somebody, um, a Brahmin, maybe it's Bhavari, asked Pingya this question. Well, if he's so wonderful and his teaching is so marvellous, how can you bear to part with him even for a moment? It's quite a good question really, isn't it? <laughs> Pingya was in contact with the actual Buddha and he's left him. What? Is he mad? What's going on? Pingya's answer. I'm not separated from him. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Well, he's basically answering a deeper question. What does contact with the Buddha really mean? He's not physically in contact with him anymore, but what does contact with the Buddha really mean? Ultimately, it means contacting the Buddha's mind. The enlightened mind, being in contact with that. Ultimately, in the end, you can only do that if you become enlightened yourself. And this is, you know, this is what real contact with the Buddha means. In the earlier kind of love song, hymn of praise about the Buddha, the Buddha is someone that Pingya admires, someone he looks up to, someone who's outside of himself. Now he seems to be beginning to internalise the Buddha um, uh, so that uh, he's always with him. That's, that's what he's talking about. Similarly, if you have a faith response to the Dharma, it's not, not, not enough just to admire it, just to think the ideas are great and they're wonderful. You've got to put it into practice. You've got to internalise it. You've got to make it part of your own experience. You've got to ultimately penetrate it, realise it, become one with it, gain insight into it. If you have a faith response in the Sangha, it's not enough just to admire it and think, oh, I really like them. Ultimately, unfortunately, it means you have to join it. Ha <laughs> ha! Bad luck. Um, and there's levels within levels. You might join the order, but then it's not enough to join the order. You've actually got to join the Arya Sangha, the Noble Sangha. Ultimately, you've got to join the Sangha of the Buddhas. Yeah? So there's kind of levels within levels of this. 
Faith, Shraddha, needs not to be just a felt response, not even just to accord with uh, experience. It has to be confirmed, uh, not, not even just to accord with reason, it has to be confirmed within your experience. It has to deepen. Alright, so let's go back to Pingius. And the next, uh, you know, how has he done this? Um, how has he established this deeper internalised connection with the Buddha, this deeper faith? And he lays it out in the next verse. In Pali it goes like this. Pasami nang manasa chakumava, rating divang brahmana apamato, namasa mano vivasemi rating, teneva mayami avipavasang. I see him, Brahmin, with my mind, just as if with my eyes, by night and by day. Vigilantly I spend my nights revering him, therefore I think I am never separated from him. So this verse, uh, the way I think about it, is it's laying out the central practice, what you do in order to deepen faith. It's got a name, Buddhanusati, recollection of the Buddha. Uh, as Pingi has said, all of the time. Yeah, not just occasionally, but all of the time. Even when you're getting up to the sort of things you'd really rather the Buddha didn't know about. Yeah? All the time. The Buddha doesn't mind, he's not bothered. He knows we're mad, he knows we get up to all sorts of strange things. So, you know, bringing the Buddha to mind at all times. Is that a tall order? Well, yes, it is. Uh, but it's a path. Uh, you've just got to keep at it. You've just got to build up momentum with it. How do you do that? Well, the Buddhist tradition's full of practices that help you to recall the Buddha. Chanting mantras. Uh, reading and reciting texts. The T Ratnavandana. That is a recollection practice for the three jewels. That's basically what it is. Uh, and it works so much better if you've got some sort of grasp of what the words actually mean, rather than just a you know a vague you kind of know what the translation is, but you don't know how it all fits together. It kind of works so much better if you have some sort of grasp of Pali. But you know, it's up to you. Read suttas, read life stories, copy texts, venerate them, think about them, go to festivals, festivals where you're celebrating key um, stages within the life of the Buddha. Uh, go to those festivals. Uh, within the order, we've got the sadhana practices, where you're bringing to mind and meditating on particular Buddha figures. Eventually, if you do this, your mind starts to turn to the Buddha night and day. You start to live your life, you know, all the aspects of it, the good bits and the not-so-good bits, warts and all, in relationship to the Buddha. And that's kind of my experience. Right, so that's the practice, that's what you do, that's the karma that you perform. What's the result? What's the, the vipaka of this karma? Well, that's the next verse. So it goes like this. Faith, joy, recollection of Gotama's dispensation never leave me. Whichever direction he goes in, in that direction I am drawn. Next verse. I am old, feeble, weak. I can't physically stay with him, but my, but my thoughts and imagination always journeys with him. My mind is yoked to his. This is what Bingy is saying. This is, this is why he's never separated from the Buddha. So Pingu is, is like us, he's separated from the physical Buddha, in his case because of age and infirmity. Uh, but his imaginative, imaginative connection is now so strong 
that his mind is bound to that of the Buddha. They are yoked like oxen, shoulder to shoulder, pulling in the same direction. Yuto is the word, it means yoked. Uh, I love this word. I don't know why, but I just, I've always loved it. Even you know, when I first came across it, I thought, oh, what a fantastic word. Weird, but anyway, there you go. Uh, yoked. Pingi has now internalized the Buddha. They are inseparable. That process just started with the simple practice of bringing the Buddha to mind. You know, we can all manage that. Next verse. Uh, it's a more emphatic restatement of how contact with the Buddha has changed everything for, for Pingya. In that verse, I'm struck by this particular phrase. I was stuck in the mud, floundering, struggling from island to island. Then I saw him, the Sun Buddha. There's loads of imagery of being stuck, uh, of being overwhelmed by flooding in the Pali Canon. It was obviously a big issue for people uh, in India. Well, it still is these days, but you know. The Ganges flooding across the, across, across the plain, people are losing their lives. So this whole idea of like them fleeing to high ground to, to escape flooding uh, becomes part of the, the imagery that the Buddha uses over and over again. The title of this chapter, the Parayanavaga, refers to it, the other shore, getting to the other shore, which is safety. Um, yeah, the other shore, enlightenment. Uh, the true escape from the flood. Our li the little islands are our false refuges. They're the, um, they're the bits of security that we cobble together in our lives that just kind of, you know, we, we, we desperately cling to and then they fall apart on us. Or rather the floodwaters rise and then we realise, oh, this isn't a true refuge. This isn't going to bring security. So it's the other shore that we need to get to. I don't know if you, well, presumably you probably will remember this. Um, when was it? 2005, maybe? The tsunami in Japan? Do you remember the footage from that? You know, um, I remember watching the news and there were people in cars on a highway, uh, so they couldn't escape and the wave was just coming towards them and they were kind of filming it on their phones. You know, this, they, were, they were about to be drowned by, and I remember this as I really stuck in my mind. Well, that's a very good image for our existential situation. You know, that's what we are facing. The tsunami is death, of course, it's impermanence. It will overwhelm us. It's coming for us. We need to get to the other shore. It's barreling towards us. Um, the more we contact the Buddha, and the more deeply we contact the Buddha, the more we can open up to that reality uh, of our situation, and the more we are impelled to escape. Uh, and the more that impulse grips us and moves us and changes our lives. Okay, next verse. Now something really weird happens. The Buddha starts speaking. Oh, okay. He's not there. What's going on? He says this, out of the air presumably. Just like Vaikali, Bhadravuddha and Alavi Gotama were released by faith, so too will you, Pingya, be released by faith. Unleash your faith and you will, you will reach the further shore. Uh, that's kind of my rendering of it. Unleash your faith, Pingya. I love it. Um, so hang on, yeah, what's going on here? The Buddha's not around, yet he's speaking to Pingya. What does this mean? Well, there's a number of ways we could take this. Maybe it's as if... Um, 
Pingya has internalised the Buddha so deeply, his contact is now so strong, that it becomes a source of guidance for him. Maybe this is his equivalent of insight occurring. Uh, insight, you know, when your contact with the Dharma is now so real that it guides you. In the um, Mahaparinibbana Sutta, this is the, the account of the last days of the Buddha, uh, just before he dies, there's, a phrase, there's something he says to the monks, which I find really interesting in this regard. So he's lying dying, and he exhorts the monks to become independent in the master's dispensation, you know, to gain insight, basically. And the phrase he uses is, become, uh, become islands unto yourselves, become your own true refuge, yeah? become refuges unto yourselves. Pingya experiences all of this uh, as if it was the Buddha, somebody outside of himself, talking to him. So what I think we're talking about here is the arising of other power. Are you familiar with this idea, other power? It's one of my favourite topics. <laughs> I'm into Shinran, so there you go. Self-power and other power, are you familiar with these ideas? They're themes that are particularly articulated in Far Eastern Buddhism, and particularly in the teaching of Shinran. Um... It's a way of, well, one way of thinking about this, it's a way of trying to, uh, to articulate something that's rather paradoxical about the spiritual life or the process of spiritual change. Self-power is you trying to transcend yourself. It doesn't make sense because it's you trying to transcend, it's your idea of what transcending yourself is. There's a problem in there, there's a kind of paradox in there. In order to do that, in order to transcend yourself, you has to go. I was like, oh. Uh, in a sense, you have to die so that something else can arise. Um, this is what we talk about when we're talking about spiritual death, the process of spiritual death. And spiritual death leads to spiritual rebirth. The new you uh, needs to be of a completely different order of being. And it feels almost as if it comes from outside of yourself. That's what other power is talking about. So, yeah. Um, Think about anything that you've really changed and have just, you know, just bring that to mind. I'm not saying do that now, but reflect on it. Reflect on what that process was like. So for me, the one I think about is when I finally gave up smoking. It took me two decades, okay? Um, you know, I gave up at one point, I think, for seven years. During the building project, towards the end of it, when we were really under loads of pressure, I started smoking again. <laughs> Whoa! We were working all the time, 24 hours a day, eating Mars bars and smoking cigarettes. Like, what? I've started smoking again. Anyway, for me, finally, uh, I knew I'd done it when I could recall the pleasure of the, the first drag of a roll-up, first thing in the morning, preferably with a cup of coffee. Mm. Coffee and cigarettes are breakfast as champions. Is, uh, who's that? Is that uh, Iggy Pop? Somebody like that says. Who is it? Was it Frank Zappa? Okay. Mm. Um, I could recall the pleasure of that first drag of that morning roll-up and what it would do to me, but I found it utterly uninteresting. And I thought, oh, blimey, you've changed, mate. Um, somehow or other I could kind of see the whole cycle of the craving, the satisfaction of that craving, and then the way it would just arise again, and then all the side effects. And I just found it all a bit ugh, disgusting, really. Um, yeah, it just seemed mad. So smoking was no longer a matter of uh, me applying willpower, trying not to smoke, and then having inevitable lapses. 
I just wasn't interested anymore. You know, I'd entered this kind of new and quite unfamiliar uh, territory. I did not recognise myself. Remember, you know, before I came across Buddhism back in my early 20s, I used to smoke a lot of ganja, and I mean a lot. I used to, I mean, smoking was a big part of I identified strongly with it, and it's like, I'm not that person anymore. Wow. I think that gives you a flavour of it. So, uh, when we transcend ourselves in the way the Buddha is encouraging us to do, we're not going to be us on a really good day um, that just carries on, you know, we're just at our best and everything goes really well. It's not about that. We will be someone quite new, we'll be a completely different order of being. We won't be who we are now. Self-power, to return to that, the bit that we do, the actions we perform, in a way, is about how we get our samsaric selves out of the way so that enlightenment can start to shine through. And that's the other power bit. There's an image uh, I use uh, when I think about this. Our spiritual practice is basically we, <coughs> we launch and fly a kite in a thunderstorm. Hey, I've got it up there. And we're flying the kite. You know, our self-power bit, the karma niyama is getting that kite up there. What happens? Well, ideally what happens is lightning strikes. Uh, that's, that's when other power uh, takes over. And it blows our legs off. Oh, never mind. We're destroyed. We've become something else. There's another way of thinking about this. Again, I'm just going to throw it out there. You can maybe reflect about this if you want to. If you want to. Um, thinking about the niyamas, the orders of conditionality, the levels of conditionality. Self-power is... Um, when we're talking about self-power, we're talking about the, the level of karma niyama. The actions you perform and the, fruit and the, the, the results you experience. But in dependence upon karma niyama, something else, dharma niyama, arises. So as again, referring back to what I said just before, maybe karma niyama is about you getting yourself out of the way so that dharma niyama can start to uh, express itself through you. If you're interested in looking at this, well, look again at that book of Maitreya Bandhu, the, um, the, the Path and the Guide. It's in there. There's a good, good exploration of it there. So, Pingi has been doing his self-power bit. He's worked on Buddhanus Sati. He's been rec recalling the Buddha. Now something else, the unconditioned Pingi, picks up the reins. The Buddha speaks. I'll throw this in. One other, perhaps more mysterious way of thinking about this, which I find interesting. Um... Perhaps, if faith is deep enough, or if your imagination is powerful enough, they begin to operate outside the constraints of space and time. Ooh, what does that mean? No idea. Um, maybe Pingya really is in direct contact with the Buddha, and the Buddha is talking to him. Maybe Pingya is really in direct contact with Shakyamuni's mind, uh, in a way in which being separated by distance doesn't make any sense. The whole framework of self and other is breaking down. I'm speculating wildly here, but it's something I like to sort of think about sometimes. But in this regard, I can uh, point to an experience I've had on a much lower level that kind of fits with this interpretation. And it was Maharshadri who put me onto this. Uh, it's a comment he made in a chapter meeting one time. We were talking about being at Bodhgaya, and he said, oh yeah, yeah, when you were at the Mahabodhi temple, walking around the Mahabodhi temple and chanting, you were there with the Buddha, I could see it. And I thought back on that experience, and I thought, 
Actually, yeah, that is what it felt like. Uh, I was hanging out with the Buddha. That's what was going on. I know he died two and a half thousand years ago, but I was actually there with him. That's what it kind of felt like. Yeah, hanging out with the Buddha here and now. I'm not making any big claims here. I'm a very, very foolish being, and I remain so, uh, despite my attempts to not be one. Uh, but I can recall that experience, and it, it kind of does point to something really interesting for me. Okay. So finally, as we're getting towards the end of the the the, the, para, the, uh, the Pingya's praises verses, finally Pingya restates even more emphatically his confidence in the Buddha as an enlightened being, uh, and he ends with this particular verse. So again, I'll read out in Pali first, and then have a look at the translation. Ada gamisami nameta kanka evang mangdarehi adimuta chitangti. Certainly, I will go there. I have no doubt about this. Of me, you can accept my mind has reached the highest liberation. This is how the, the text ends. Pengia now knows that he's irreversible. He either is or he definitely will become enlightened. He's in touch with the Buddha, enlightened mind to enlightened mind. He's part of the, the, the noble Sangha. Okay, so what have I learnt? Hmm. So Pingi is articulating a path of faith, of sadha, of shraddha. It starts with, with admiration, uh, you know, admiration of an object that's very much outside of yourself. And it leads to an unbreakable connection. An unbreakable connection which allows enlightenment to erupt into his mind. I've also learnt that I'm a faith type as well. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a faith follower, like Pingia. So something I, oh God, for quite a number of years I felt really odd about myself, because like, you know what, I'm not actually interested in insight. Uh, you know, I spent all those years trying to get it and I just ran into a brick wall. Now I'm fed up with it. I've taken my ball home and I'm not interested in insight anymore. I'm not actually interested in wisdom. Um, the very notion that a spiritual numpty like me could possibly gain something like insight just seems frankly laughable. Um, I'm not all that interested in meditation anymore. I've had plenty of profound experiences in meditation. Um, yes, yeah, very profound ones at times. But for some strange reason I don't give them much weight. But what I do is I want to hang out with the Buddha. Uh, yeah, and I want to hang out with him a lot. <laughs> I really love the Buddha. I love the Buddha more than I used to, so there's something going on. I am separated by a gulf of two and a half thousand years and thousands of miles, but I admire him. I love him. I long to be with him at all times, with my mind yoked to his. And yeah, that process does seem to be deepening, and I'm not making any claims beyond that, but you know, that seems enough. So, yeah, that's enough. It's enough to mean that, yeah, perhaps I should be in the order after all, despite my apparent lack of interest in uh, insight and deep meditation experience. It's interesting in this regard, as I, you know, I rejoined that chapter with you in it um, through two years ago now? Yeah, something like that. And I discovered to my horror very quickly that there were several people, including Marshall, who, liked to, who were really interested in insight and liked to talk about it. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to have to resign. 
I can't possibly be in the order with these people. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting response. That was my initial kind of knee-jerk rea uh, reaction. Because, you know, people talking about insight just, go, whoosh, just goes over my head. Okay. But I didn't follow that re uh, uh, response through. Instead, I've engaged with them. Uh, I've debated with them. I've said, well, what do you mean by that? And I've had some really interesting conversations with Marshrada, Satchit, and various other in, in, in the chapter sort of generally. And uh, slowly I found myself de you know, developing some sympathy with why they might want to talk about such a strange topic. Um, I even perhaps respect it these days, which is interesting. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm now, uh, I've just started the process of getting into more dialogue with people who are interested in the insight inquiry methods, which is quite a current issue within the order. This topic uh, about insight and how to gain it is very current in the order and the movement, and potentially it can be a very divisive one. So it's not just an issue for me. What I'm learning through this is that, um, well, the way I'm getting a sense of it is that there, there do seem to be very different modes by which spiritual experience unfolds. Um, because, probably, and, and deepens, probably because people are very different. There's a, a classical classification I'll mention here, I won't say much about it. I mentioned being a faith type. Um, there's a threefold classification. Faith type, wisdom type, body witness. Again, I'm not going to explain it. But there is a sutta somewhere where um, there's three, three arahants, Shariputra, and I can't remember who the other two are, one of whom's a faith type, one's a, a wisdom type, and one's a body witness, go to the Buddha and they, have a, they sort of say to the Buddha, you know, there's these three types, which one's best? And the Buddha goes, well, it'll work. That's basically his response. So yeah, um, there are very different types of spiritual experience unfolding. And people of different types will not necessarily very readily understand one another. You know, hence my kind of uh, response uh, in the chapter. It takes time and it takes work to reach this understanding. And for me that's been a really interesting process because kind of, I've had to kind of soften the kind of hard, entrenched attitudes I've got, which has been really, really useful. And, you know, makes me much more aware of the kind of weaknesses of my own kind of predispositions. Uh, so I can work with them better. And it's forcing me to go deeper to find where does our unity actually lie? You know, what, what is our real common ground? That unity within the midst of our diversity. But again, that's the subject of another talk. Okay, we're about there. So this has been a kind of show and tell. This is what's been going on in my spiritual life for the last 28 years, such as it is. I hope in some way uh, it was useful. Not too many of you seem to fall asleep, so you know, maybe it was. Um, it's been about how I found and learned to love a particular text. And how that text has led me into this friendship. And it feels like a very real friendship with Pingya. And through him, with the Buddha. And how they're teaching me about what faith is. And if you take any one thing away from all this... You know, just remember, this has not been the result of a coherent plan. It hasn't worked like that. I just noticed a thread of interest and I just kept pulling at it.